0: You sent in the wolf? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana, banana. Aristotle was not Belgian.
1: Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory.
0: You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water.
1: I'm your density.
0: welcome to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf, and I'm so glad you're joining me. Happy New Year! Um, so, I'm so happy to, that we're here today. I'm happy to get this uh, this episode up there. If you listen to my last week's episode with Scott Mance, um, you know, I know that the holidays can sometimes be a little trying for everybody, and I always appreciate it when my favorite podcasts and shows and sources of entertainment stay on their regular schedule. So here we are, uh, New Year 2018, and Uh, the first episode of the year is with Miss Miri Jedekin, and we are talking about The Shining, which is actually, once again, like similar episodes in the past that just so happened to like serendipitously land in a rather appropriate uh, release slot. I'm thrilled that The Shining is coming out this week because it's such a cold, wintry, scary movie um, in some of those cold, wintry, scary ways. And so I feel like the first week of January when it's like, yeah, it's not quite Quite the holidays anymore. We're kind of in the doldrums, you know. You got Valentine's Day in six weeks, and then it's springtime again. What's going on? So anyway, for for a, such an icy, wintry, cold, snowy movie, um, I think it's perfect timing. All right. So just a couple of quick things. Um, I really, really love this episode. I know I say it every week, but I love this one because as some of you guys may or may not know, um, I talk about my beloved horror genre all the time, um, but I am not a huge fan of The Shining. I never really have been, and uh, it hasn't quite grown on me over the years. Um, I love Stephen King's novel, The Shining, but as we know, it, or as you may or may not know, but I'm pretty sure most of you guys know, it's sort of been well-documented that um, Stephen Stephen King was not too pleased with the way the adaptation of his movie came out. Um, and so I'm really glad that I'm talking to Mary about this one because Mary and I see eye to eye on a lot of different things and a lot of different topics. And this is not one of them. Uh, she loves this movie. And uh, fun fact about Mary and trust me, I love all of my guests equally, like children, but Mary is really the first guest to ever... Cool, like specifically follow my instructions <laughs> about picking a movie off of a certain list and then adding a movie to that specific list. I guess everybody kind of does it, but Mary specifically picked The Shining off of the quotes list, um, so that she could add a an underappreciated film or two with underappreciated quotes to that list. Which I thought I was like, good job, Mary. I am so proud of you. Um, so we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna. Talk about Kubrick, we're going to talk about Jack Nicholson, and we're going to talk about the adaptation of this film. Um, But we also get into the idea of a movie's acclaim either appreciating or depreciating over the years. So, as we are seeing, you know, with social media and with the internet, we as film fans um, have access to all kinds of opinions about all kinds of things at all times. And we are seeing fierce fan debate over, let's say something like the last Jedi. Um, And, but the question is in 10 years, in 20 years, will films that are either have mixed critical reception, fans turn on them or the other way around, fans love them, critics hate them. You know, where will these movies stand in the test of time? And The Shining is an excellent example of that because when this movie first came out, it was not a smash. It was not like, let's say, The Exorcist, which which broke box office records and, and made tons and tons and tons of money. It was very, very... Uh, it was very mixed in its reception from critics and audiences alike. But over time, the uh, value of this film has appreciated. And I think that that's absolutely fascinating. So we'll get into that. We'll get into all that. And so many other things. Um, I think this is a great conversation, and uh, and I'm really happy that we had it. So thank you for being here. If this is your first time, welcome. If you are returning, thanks so much for coming back. This is my conversation about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining with Mary Jettikin. Uh And you're my fifth one. Whoop, whoop. So who's in my company? So uh, I started, my first with Scott Mance. Aww, and uh, it's funny sweet. because Scott, uh, we talked about Close Encounters, mm-hmm. but the movie you and I are talking about came up a lot. And yeah, so it's kind of fun. And then after that, I spoke with um, Sam Levine Mm -hmm. and we talked about The Godfather. And then actually, you're my fourth. And then I spoke with Rebecca McKendry Mm -hmm. um, and we discussed Vertigo. Love that movie. Yeah. It's so fun because they're all great movies. Yeah, they are. So you don't have
1: to pick anything apart negatively. And they're also
0: different. Um, And it's also been fun, too, because, you know, it's fun re-examining like what's considered a classic however many years later. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, you know, I mean like, I certainly, like Rebecca and I upon further examination when we were talking about Vertigo, we were kind of both like, yeah, we don't really like this movie. <laughs> and it's kind but it's not, it's undeniable that they're great movies yeah. and they're so well made and they're so of their time, but at the same time, it's also like, yeah, we, we don't really like this one. So it's kind of fun, though. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so you're my fourth. I
1: can't and, imagine you don't like The Shining, though.
0: Um, well, we'll get into that. OK. Um, but before we do, um, let me go ahead and introduce you, because banter is always great. And um, so, Miri Jedekin, thank you for chatting with me. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very excited to talk to you, um, just in general. Like you were saying, I feel like we never get a chance to see each other. I know. Life gets in the way. It does. But but we have dogs that might be related. We do. And they need to be best friends. And Rufus needs to be, Rufus, my dog needs to be socialized, um, Aww. more for sure. He, he's a people dog. He yeah. thinks he's a people. And so he likes to, uh, he likes to, he loves people and he likes other dogs too, but he definitely is a little squirrely at first. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's cause he's a rescue dog and he's yeah. a little like just, he's just scrappy in general. He's cute. But once he gets to know, you know, other doggies, he likes them. Mm-hmm. Um, Um, And so he's got to meet your little one. I know. Well, they might be. be brothers who knows they from might another be mother. brothers from another mother um so we are t- so you know I love the thing that I'm excited most about about this show that we're doing is is that I love that the guest picks the 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 movie mm-hmm. and I you had a couple of great ones that you were narrowing down I did I wanted to talk about all of them to be I, honest <laughs> with you um but you picked one that is definitely in my wheelhouse for sure that I've spent a lot of time thinking about mm-hmm. um Um, and that's The Shining um, from director Stanley Kubrick and um, so for our AFI purposes just so because I have it here it's on three different AFI lists Mm -hmm. number 31 on the 100 Greatest Thrills um, number 68 on the 100 Greatest Quotes which is Here's Johnny of Mm -hmm. course and number 25 on the Villains and Heroes list Um, they split it up in half so half heroes half villains 50 and 50 and Jack was number 25 he's a a pretty good villain I chose it for the quotes oh, specifically. Oh, I love that. Um, mainly now
1: why? Well, mainly because, you know, when you had told me about this podcast, you explained that I would also have to choose a film that's not on that yes. list. And yes, And so I was indeed. looking at all the lists and there were a couple of really glaring um, uh-huh. absences from the quotes list specifically. Um, and I know it's tough because they kind of have to keep, you know, updating these lists right. as movies come out. So, um that's kind of what made me think about it and then Here's Johnny is it's permeated culture i mm-hmm. think maybe more than any other movie quote i can think of or at least it's it's up there. I mean Here's Johnny is is interesting because it's Johnny Carson right that he was kind of borrowing from so within this movie that was made in 1980 or made in the, mm-hmm. you know 1979 and came out in 1980 uh you have a, a pop culture reference of the time that has now become its own pop culture reference. Yeah. So I love that sort of um, you know, inversion or that sort of like like Russian little doll, like the the stacking dolls. Like you go deeper and deeper inside and there's another pop culture reference. Now the reference is referencing another reference. Yes. So I love that sort of meta.
0: And it's weird. It's interesting too, because in the world of Stephen King specifically, like, so that quote uh was improvised, or at least that's the legend that comes along with it. So we'll go with it. We'll go with the legend. <laughs> um, but uh, but in the world of Stephen King re- books, especially, um, there's a lot of pop culture reference. In s- I just finished reading it for the first time, mm-hmm. and it is all you know, music and movies and TV and and um, comic books mm-hmm. and just all these all these relics of of you know popular culture. And it's so funny that you know Stephen King. Um, as an author, is almost the most iconic pop culture author that's out there, sort of. Which, it's, But you're right, so it's another little nesting doll, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, so. That's the word
1: I was looking for, nesting
0: dolls. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but, so
1: that was one of the ways in for The Shining, and and I don't know, I, I like talking about this movie, I've talked about it before.
0: Good, um, I, I want to talk about this movie with you specifically, actually, in addition to the fact that you picked it, mm-hmm. um, because... There's a lot. Why? Why have? Why do you like talking about this movie? Uh, well, for me, The
1: Shining kind of represents one of my favorite facets of cinema, which is a movie that can be a mainstream film that can be accessible to a broad audience, but that still has so many layers in terms of symbolism, in terms of um, abstract art, in terms of surrealism and magic realism. Um, I think Stanley Kubrick, this was his first real mainstream release in how it came out. And one of the reasons I picked it is because, you know, we're getting closer to um, Memorial Day. And this came out on Memorial Day weekend. (laughs) And so I thought, wow, what an interesting time of year to come out with such a somber, dark, terrifying film. So that kind of interested me. And I think this is one of those movies that You know, the book had a fair bit of lore uh, that was brought into it that Stephen Stephen King is is for some reason obsessed with Native American burial grounds. Yes. This is something that fascinates him. And the whole premise of The Shining in the book is that it was built— the overlook hotel yes on an ancient native american burial ground and i find that to be interesting because there's a timelessness to that but there's also a timeliness where right now we're dealing with you know native american people being basically exploited again having their lands you know illegally being utilized mm-hmm. for other things that they have not signed on to. and there's all these treaties and violations of treaties and so i find that karma interesting mm-hmm. that like karmic ongoing thing that this country has sadly with the native american population and i just find that interesting that he kind of took something that's very rooted and grounded in reality and made it otherworldly made it supernatural and i think kubrick was fascinated with native american culture he was fascinated with native american history um, and so I, I, I found those aspects kind of interesting to talk about right now.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because you know it's funny. In speaking of pop culture in a broader sense, um, there's there's all this this myth that's got been permeated throughout the last I'd say 30 40 years of these horror movie premises. Oh, it was built on, and I'm using quote fingers when I say Indian, so mm-hmm. built on an Indian burial ground. And one that often gets pointed to is Poltergeist, mm-hmm. and um, that is not correct. It is a it is is a myth that is like through the culture, but there is nothing there is no mention of Native American burial grounds anywhere in that movie. In the yeah. first one at least. And in this one, when uh, when Ullman is taking people taking them around, he actually says, yeah. like, well, oh, it was built on an on an Indian burial yeah. ground. And I was like, Aha. Yes. So there is actually one that like is actually <laughs> a Native American burial ground. Because Poltergeist guys ain't it. And I know. and I had never picked up on that or remembered it. I've read the novel. And obviously, there is um, a lot of Native American um, symbolism and and um, imagery, like in terms of um, artifacts and things like that, throughout the film and throughout the novel. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just never picked up on that part of it. it that's was,
1: interesting too about Poltergeist because I remember wasn't it a burial ground? It's, an, it's a cemetery, right? But so, it's not like a no. Native American. It doesn't have that. It's but just Pitt a cemetery. cemetery. Does
0: yeah, that, and that's Stephen King Again, as Stephen well. King. So he's it makes like, sense. he's into
1: that, and I guess Kubrick was into it too. The other reason why I picked The Shining, there's so many reasons, but is is i i find films interesting that get to a certain age where when they first came out received mixed reviews. Like yes. Steven Spielberg notably hated this movie and thought it wasn't very good King when it or came Spielberg. out. King Spielberg? Steven Spielberg. Okay. Did I say Stephen King? You said Spielberg but yes. King also hates it. Oh real interesting. So we,
0: we'll talk about that later. So Steven
1: Spielberg did not like the film and later I believe and I could be wrong with this I believe he did come around to say that it's a much better film on later viewings mm. and this is interesting to me because there are so many films that come out that I love that nobody else loves. Sure. And And that I wonder, you know, in 30 years, will the lens of time change the perspective on this film? Because now The Shining is a classic. Yeah, it's a classic. It's very celebrated. I think it's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Um, It's certainly one of my favorite horror films. It's not my favorite. But it's close um, for all the reasons we've talked about. And also because I think Stanley Kubrick he always tried to reinvent a genre when he stepped inside of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think here was his opportunity to sort of reinvent or reinvigorate the horror genre, which has been around since the dawn of cinema. Sure. But he decided he was going to put his twist on it. And I love how he I love how he kind of interpreted the genre through something that still felt very much like a Kubrick film, the use of red and the oh, use yeah. of symmetry and the beautiful angles and the powerful music. And I, I feel like he kind of... I don't know if he informed audiences of this, but he certainly reminded audiences that just because it's a genre film doesn't mean it can't be beautiful. Sure. And I love that about The Shining.
0: Yeah, and you know, this came out in the wake of The Exorcist, Mm -hmm. Rosemary's Baby. It was funny when I was re-watching it um, last night and this morning, I was reminded, or I noticed for some reason I was getting a lot of thematic similarities with Rosemary's Baby. I I know that sounds weird, Mm -mm. and that's a whole other podcast, I think, but like, yeah, there's, there's something to, that There's thematically. definitely something to that, and I, I th- think. But you know, it's funny. So you've I love that you bring up the idea of a Kubrick a, or a Kubrickian horror film, Um, because not only did The Shining get mixed reviews when it first came out, but a lot of filmmakers still don't like this movie or 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 feel the need to say they don't like the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Cronenberg probably most recently in 2013, just completely unprompted, started giving these interviews and he was like yeah Stanley Kubrick made a shitty horror movie and I was like wait a second like first of all nobody asked you that but um, the quote was I I think I'm a more personal or a more intimate personal filmmaker than Kubrick ever was that's why I find The Shining not to be a great film I don't think he understood the genre I don't think he understood what he was doing there were some striking images in the book and he got that but I don't think he really felt it and that was now granted I'm not the biggest Cronenberg fan yeah I was gonna say this is the guy who made Crash I mean he's made <laughs> a lot of, look, Cronenberg certainly has his own um, his his fans that love him. Similar, I think they're actually yeah. very comparable filmmakers because yeah. they make movies where you look at it and you go, "That is a this movie, no matter yeah. the genre." Um, and yet, and there are lots of themes for sure in, in reoccurring themes, I should say, in both Kubrick's work and Cronenberg's work. And um, I I didn't. Um, find it before I came I have a, a horror book that has it but I think it was De Palma too mm-hmm. who gave a lo- who gave some shade about The Shining Interesting. Um, all really strong auteurs in yes. their own right I mean what's interesting about that is that
1: both Cronenberg and De Palma are such uncompromising storytellers and that's why I appreciate and respect them both yes. and, I, and I do like a lot of their films but I certainly don't like a lot of their films yes, as well absolutely. and I think the same could be said for Kubrick even more I mean Kubrick I think I mean, I'm a big Kubrick fan, so I'm going to probably be biased in my defense of him. But I do think that they are similar. I think mm-hmm. you make a good point, and that they they sort of brought a new angle on t- into th- into this the way we t- tell stories in cinema. Yeah, and I think Kubrick certainly did that. So, well, interesting.
0: I'd be curious too. So, before we actually get into like the meat and the themes of the movie, mm-hmm. um, because the, this comes up all the time. As long as Stephen King is alive, um, he's going to be asked about The Shining because he notoriously is not a fan of the movie. Now, here's a quote or a conversation that I found interesting that I want to put to you. So Rolling Stone um, asked Stephen King, was it possible that Kubrick made a great film that also happens to be a bad adaptation? And I think that happens all the time, right? Like the idea that, you know, look, this is not a direct adaptation of your material and it, nobody probably living right now knows more about that than Stephen King. Maybe like Tom Clancy or <laughs> or uh, John Grisham, maybe. Yeah. But um, and And King said, no. It is not a good adaptation. It's not a good film or a bad adaptation. Like it's just, I don't like this movie. Right. Um, and so I wanted to bring that up very briefly because my experience with The Shining has always been that I find it deeply impersonal. Mm. Like I, fi- I feel my problem with Jack Torrance and Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance. And before I go any further. The moments where Jack Torrance is unhinged, and I'd say it's about a third of the movie mm-hmm. through, so the last two thirds of the film, Nicholson's performance is fantastic. Um, but I have never liked this movie, for, and I didn't know that Stephen King had this rationale until much later, but because I never thought that he was Danny's father. Ever, like I never bought the relationship. I, I honestly, for so the first time I saw The Shining all the way through. I was 22 years old, but I had seen it on TV or I'd seen whatever, but I was, you know, I didn't watch it from like beginning to end. And I always thought that uh, Jack Torrance was Danny's adoptive father. Interesting. We've talked about this. Have we? Yeah. Yeah. And I never. So when I figured out like, oh shit, that's supposed to be his biological father. No way. And so to me, and, and King has said this as well, and I do agree with him when you know, Jack Torrance shows up at the job interview and he's already unhinged. He's already got that madness in his eye. There's no descent, And so you're basically just watching him honestly, like go up to 11 as Mm -hmm. opposed to descend into this bottomless. So do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I think that's a very interesting analysis and I get it. And I see why you feel that way. And I think it's 100% valid. The reason why I like... The Shining and why I like Jack Torrance is maybe the exact reason why you have an issue with it. Mm. Because one of the things that Kubrick did, and I, I've only realized this in watching it multiple mm. times, is to, to just touch on the themes that we're going to discuss more. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that he touches on in a very subtle, almost like blink and you can miss it way, mm-hmm. is the theme of alcoholism yeah. and abuse yeah. Um, and. And what it's like to be in a father-son dynamic or a parent-child dynamic where the parent is trying to uh, overcome addiction. Yeah. Because addiction is like a demon. I mean, and and the fact that Jack gets possessed in some ways by the demons that are, you know, lurking in the aura mm-hmm. of the Overlook Hotel, to me, is just an allegory for how his alcoholism meant he was susceptible. He was susceptible to negative dark influences. And of course, it makes me think of Star Wars and The Force. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can go into the good and you can go into the bad. And it's this classic sort of Joseph Campbell archetype uh, that or, you know, Carl Jung archetype of good and evil and the ability for some people to be a little more malleable towards evil. Mm -hmm. And I think he represents that. I do think that at that period of time, Jack Nicholson was maybe utilizing that sort of thing in his performances mm-hmm. he often does that and i can see why it can be an issue like in the witches of eastwick he has the same sort of thing where he's like charming yes. but just evil he's the devil basically sorry spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it but it is like a 30 year old movie so i think yeah. i get a pass and but also anyway. that's not a big secret like yeah you, you, like we all know. daryl van horn yeah, come on come on but um but it's interesting to me because uh it's unsettling, and I think also there are themes of misogyny. Oh, and yeah. there are themes of brutalizing women, and there are women, you know, most of the sort of uh, horrific images are images of little girls or mm-hmm. old women that are, like, rotting in a bathtub. Absolutely. So these are all things that I think kind of play into Kubrick's... Uh, sort of exploration of how these things can alienate a person and make them feel very distant from humanity and I think he very intentionally wanted Jack Torrance to not ever really be someone you could get inside of Mm -hmm. so that's why I think it's there I do understand what you're saying though and I think it's totally valid
0: well and it's interesting too um, because so I actually wrote down while I was writing while I was watching this movie like or re-watching it Mm -hmm. what was the direction Kubrick gave Nicholson I have always been curious That's about this. That's a great this. question. Like what, what, because Kubrick and Nicholson did not have a fraught relationship. Mm-hmm. I think it's very well documented that Scatman Cruthers and Shelley Duvall had a very tough time working with Stanley Kubrick. And Jack Nicholson. Um, well, Shelley did. Well, and yeah, uh, yeah. So, so, um, so with that being said, like, I always wondered what the discussion was about the character um, or what Kubrick wanted from him. Because great when question. it comes to Danny and um, Wendy, that's another thing that I have always felt. I think Kubrick as the director and person who worked on this screenplay with his co-der- or co-writer, um, I don't think he likes those characters. Interesting. And so, and I think it's, to me, as an audience member, it's very clear that the director Does not like these characters. And what does that say about women and children and all of those things? But I actually wrote down also on the token of of Jack Nicholson, um, I felt like he was more grounded when he was playing the Joker or the Devil, Mm. which is interesting when you think about it, right? Because these are two archetypal, larger than life characters in the Joker and the devil. And they're villains. And they're villains. And yet there's like the Joker to me, Jack Napier slash the Joker in Tim Burton's Batman. He seems somewhat grounded in reality. Even though he's playing... A, a, charic- well, he has a character. We have a backstory that you That's can right. connect to, yeah. And, and you do see the change between Jack Napier in the first 20 minutes and the Joker, right? Yeah. You see the progression. And with Daryl Van Horn, there is. To an extent, and it's manipulative, but I think there is an empathy that he is capable of with these women. For sure. And so that is, and granted, look, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm saying anything negative Mm -hmm. about Nicholson in in terms of performance, especially in this movie. I think it was a choice. And that is a choice that has always fascinated me. The idea that you're not allowed to get inside, like you said. Well, what's interesting, if we can just tangentially talk about Witches of Eastwick for a second as it
1: relates to The Shining and Jack Nicholson's performance. So The Witches of Eastwick, to me, it's fascinating because John Updike wrote the novel. John Updike is known for having a very male point of view to the point of being sexist, to the point of, you know, exploring themes of misogyny in his work. And I believe The Witches of Eastwick was kind of meant to... Not negatively express female power, but it's the story of how three women get together and basically overpower the devil. Yeah. And it's, it's about female power and female empowerment in a very sort of roundabout kind of 80s, you know, sort of shades of misogyny here and there. And they're beautiful and mm-hmm. they've, you know, they meet the male gaze and all of that stuff. But what's interesting about Daryl Van Horn is that in order to seduce them— he has to play on their vulnerabilities. And
0: understand them. And
1: be compassionate. That's right. So like when Alex, who Cher plays, Mm -hmm. is in his bedroom and she's being a Mm smartass, which Cher is wonderful at being a smartass, he breaks her down by connecting to the fact that she's a single mother, that she's making the beds every day, that isn't it get tiring? Don't you need to be there for you? Mm -hmm. And he just basically gives her a pep talk to the point where she basically just takes her clothes off and has sex with him. And so I feel like... You're right. There is a manipulation there. I think it's almost the inverse with Jack Torrance. I feel like Jack Torrance is incapable of that level of empathy. And so that's why it's impossible for you as an audience member to sort of be like... I kind of yes. get this guy because he doesn't get any he is not connected to his wife he's not connected to his son and it's it's eerie from minute one
0: so like he's talking
1: about the Donner party in the car yeah, and like yes. the third scene and like well <laughs> they ate each other he's hilarious. like yes they ate each other they Danny.
0: did son it's so um, weird no I, le- I well, love it and so <laughs> I'm so glad you bring that up that's a great comparison because let's talk about Wendy let's mm-hmm. talk about Wendy Torrance because you know so you're right uh, Jack Torrance does not um underst- reach for understanding Mm-mm. with his wife or compassion with his wife or empathy with his wife. He basically resorts to your classic abuser, batterer tropes. Yeah. Um, and and of course she is is the t- the mother who is and wife who is going, "It's fine. This is fine." Yeah. No, you broke our kid's arm on accident. It was an Accident. It would happen. Making excuses
1: for him. And by
0: the way, speaking of the the scene with the or the concept of, of Jack breaking Danny's arm, uh, one of the things that I picked up on this time around is that you hear the story from both parents, Yeah, and I love that. Yeah, that's two it, point of view. And two it's almost view. like, you know, while Wendy is talking to a medical professional, Jack is talking to a bartender. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much more clear in a mirror image yeah. that you can get for these two characters, right? That's a good observation. So it's like, yeah. that's awesome. Um, But I, I think that it is just, God, it was... It was you know, painful to watch Wendy, painful in a superficial way in that it's just like, God, she's histrionic the whole time. I have a heart. it's funny you bring up
1: Wendy. Wendy is the big sticking point for me with yes. The Shining, mainly because, and this is, it happened in layers, like everything with The Shining. The first time I saw The Shining, I was very young. I have mm-hmm. three older siblings who watched Nightmare on Elm Street and, and, you know, Friday the 13th and all these horror movies and Carrie and Halloween. And I saw all those movies by the time I was 10. Mm -hmm. Like, I had seen everything and I loved it. I loved being scared. So that's why I love how much you love horror. So I'm like, yes. Um, (laughs) But I remember The Shining very distinctly seeing it for the first time and it terrified me. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I could conceive at the time of all the reasons why. But on a very basic, kind of primal nine year old or 10 year old level, I understood that it was about a person who was so broken they would kill their own family. To feed the demons inside of them. And that's basically, I think, at the core of the story, which is so disturbing. Um, But I think what's interesting about um, The the Shining and the way it treats Wendy, and Wendy always bothered me, Mm -hmm. even as a little girl. Like, I was raised by a feminist Mm -hmm. and a career woman, and Wendy just really rubbed me the wrong way because, like you said, she represents this hysterical, incapable, you know, damsel in distress mm-hmm. who's shrieking and, and just like a mess, a blubbering mess, as opposed to a lot more of the heroines we're seeing now who mm-hmm. are kicking ass sure. and taking names and, you know, stand up to fight when they need to. Right. Particularly in the horror genre, we're seeing a lot more strong women. So she rubs me the wrong way on that basic level. But then as I got older and I started understanding the thematic elements of the shining and and this theme of misogyny and abuse and I started realizing that I think Kubrick very intentionally was and maybe he was a sexist. It's not impossible to fathom that he might have also, you know, seen women as inferior, but I do think he he was trying to express things from jack's perspective which is weird because you get the villain's perspective and i think that's one of the weird mm-hmm. dissonant elements of the shining that's like whoa i'm supposed to like see his point of view without empathizing with him oh so yeah go back to your earlier point well, and wendy wendy is a sticking point She is a problem because she doesn't stand up for herself and then when you learn later that Shelley duvall was completely traumatized on that set by both jack nicholson and kubrick she was in a, a pretty horrifying state and now is you know Come out about being, you know,
0: having mental issues, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like, well, I it's think kind of Though you, know? you know, it's interesting too because hindsight's twenty twenty. 20 in the late seventies, nineteen eighty, fathers, what being a father was, I think, especially in American culture, mm-hmm. is very. Di- it's changing. It's changed totally. in you know in since twenty seventeen, and so you know the idea of like watching this. I think that the reason that a lot of people, I'm not saying all people, but a lot of people identify with The Shining is because they recognize family melodrama that they know. Like, I talk about this all the time with horror. You know, there are a handful of horror films for a... for a. Um, black sheep of a genre that cross over and become classics that even people who go oh I hate horror movies love yep. and The Shining is one of them Exorcist. Poltergeist, The Exorcist um, I think totally. even The Conjuring now and the reason that I think all of these films which are all very different and come from different time periods Rosemary's Baby um, as well uh, I think the reason they resonate is because they are all family melodramas mm-hmm. and so you know you're dealing with a family unit in turmoil. And then yes, scary shit goes on in the background. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but with that being said, what you said about, uh, about Jack and, and about how you're, you're basically like, you're supposed to identify, you're seeing it from the villain's point of view, essentially yeah. uh, during the, that iconic like baseball bat scene where, you know, Wendy figures out what's going on Jack is Nicholson, and Torrance is in full beast mode, and yeah. I, he's great. Yeah. I mean, the the way that that scene is shot, where he's just like a wolf, like predator. His lit, like throughout the whole when he's movie. Coming up the stairs. Well, it's even yes, but it's even before that. Yeah. So like when he circles around her and he's backing her oh, yeah. up the st- not even on the stairs yet, and he's looking. You the way Kubrick shot that part. No, nothing else is in the frame. Jack. Is is looking just off camera but he is pursuing you, right? Did you
1: see the documentary that... 237? No, there's oh. there's a doc about the making of The Shining no. that Kubrick's daughter made. Oh, interesting. And it, he, she uses a lot of footage from the set and mm-hmm. if you get like the special edition Blu-ray you can find it and he, they talk about this whole moment in the film mm-hmm. and and how like you see ba- you see footage of Jack Nicholson like right. like getting into character and it's terrifying watching him like find the madness within but also that shot where he's banging on the door uh, i think when she locks herself uh, into the bathroom uh-huh. oh no it's when it's when he's outside the cooler outside the fridge yeah. and he goes underneath oh yeah it's great that was completely last minute basically stanley kubrick was like how are we going to make this feel like he is overpowering the entire situation. And mm-hmm. then he just kind of lay down with his viewfinder and
0: kind of looks up at him and he's like, that's it. Because you're that's the, the prey. Yeah. The audience looking up at anything, it's whether cool. it's Michael Myers or it's, yeah. it's any anything that is up is automatically puts you in a submissive position. Yeah. But in that particular scene, I really noticed, meaning the baseball bat scene, I full on was just like, Kubrick wants us to like this guy and he wants us to agree with him. Right. He wants us to be like, "You know what, Wendy, you are kind of annoying." She is kind and, of annoying. Well, <laughs> yes, it, but in this scene in particular, it is impossible. I I truly believe that if you are in a, you know, preconceived uh, notions about what you think of the Shining or you think of Jack Nicholson or whatever, I defy anybody to watch that baseball scene and not enjoy the hell out of watching Jack do what he's doing, right? And that is so dangerous to me. Like yeah. that is like really, it's alarming. Like on the one hand, as a viewer, I'm like, "Yep, this is awesome." But on the other hand, as a as an analyst or putting some analysis on it, I'm like, "Wait a second! I don't want to enjoy the fact that you are threatening think, and abusing your but wife." That's
1: what he's playing on. That's why I think Kubrick's brilliant because he knows it's going to make people uncomfortable. He wants to. See, he I th- I think and look, he's dead, so who knows? Right. But my belief is that. He probably knew that most of the audience were smart enough to feel what you're feeling like you are and have an issue with it, but also enjoy it. And there's a tension that exists there that I find interesting in film. It's hard to pull off when you watch a villain doing something and you kind of take pleasure in it for the reasons you're talking about. But you also are appalled by it at the same time, like that push and pull, that tension and the fact that he could make you feel that way to me means that he's kind of doing his job because Jack Torrance is a vile human being in every way. And like, you know, on paper that you're not supposed to root for him. And and you don't really. I mean, he it's just it's almost like watching a gruesome like train wreck, Mm -hmm. you know, a car accident. Like when you drive by the reason why there's always a traffic jam by a brutal accident is because everyone wants to kind of see. Yeah. And there's a weird, morbid, like limbic brain fascination with. Violence and death uh-huh. and like brutality. And I think he kind of taps into that where it's like, I can't look, but I'm looking through See, my fingers. It's
0: funny because I actually, um, I, I oh I, I, it slipped my mind. I'm trying to hold so many things in I my know, brain. It's so hard. But um <laughs> but uh I you you just said something where I was like yes I agree with that, but I don't agree that Kubrick was um trying to make a point in especially in that case of like the audience being smart enough to realize the situation how wrong it is. I think yeah, maybe he not. I believe Stanley Kubrick is an incredible misogynist Probably. and um and and I I think that this movie is um is really hard for those reasons um but but that is not to say that this is not an incredible movie yeah. and and that is something that as a fan of cinema i can I can look at this movie and realize its greatness. Right. Um, you know, the 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 atmosphere that it creates is astonishing. How small you feel in the in like I think the okay. So this movie is nineteen eighty. Yeah, so it's like what thirty, almost forty, almost years, 40 years old. Years old. God and damn. and yet this movie <laughs> feels so like I am not less in awe. Of this landscape, <clears throat> this hotel, this situation, yeah. I still feel just as overpowered by the way he shot it, where he shot it, um, the uh, the music he chose. Um, so, so there there are some incredible incredible things there, and he is a masterful filmmaker. But what I, I want to ask you something that I noticed this time around more so than any other time, and that's the time jumps. Mm, mm-hmm. So, you know, you see uh, Danny. Talking to, to Dick Halloran in the um in the kitchen when they first arrived. When he talks to him with his mind that, and they realize that yep, they have the shining over together. the ice cream, right? Like, I get the chills every yeah. time. So um so <laughs> we watch that happen and basically Dick says, Don't go into room two three seven and don't be afraid or whatever it is. Right. Um just like pictures in a book, Danny. That's right. And mm-hmm. uh, but immediately we cut to one month later. Yeah. And I and I remember thinking, why did he choose to not show us that month? That's a good question. Like, and why did, and, and it happens in the end as well. When when Jack is just, like, lost his mind, he's running through the ice, he's running through the snow, just essentially can't even speak at this point. He's just bellowing, right, yeah. and, and pursuing Danny. Cut to he's dead in the ice. I love that. And I just was like, why did he choose that. Why did he choose us well, to not see him die? These time jumps in general. Yeah, I, think. I mean,
1: you know, there's been so many like books and films and, 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 you know, different forms of analysis on, on this movie and then time jumps specifically. And again, we can only guess because Kubrick remained pretty tight lipped about it all and then died. So, uh, First of all, you bring up the the end. And I think the ending is really important in terms of everything you're saying about misogyny and, you know, the sort of inferior view that clearly Kubrick probably had for women and also in this film specifically. But one of the things I think is interesting as sort of a counterpoint is she gets away and Danny gets away and they go back to the land of the living.
0: But do we know that?
1: Well, we don't necessarily know that, but we know that he doesn't make it out. we know that he is frozen and I love the and maybe it's a bit on the nose even now that I think about it but he can't make it out of the ice maze. He can't make it out of that being disconnected from humanity, from warmth, from the things that connect us. And he ends up literally freezing to death and becoming part of the lore of The Overlook because there he is in that picture at the end, which is super creepy. He has just the creepiest smile. I think Jack Nicholson is so good at, like, utilizing his facial expressions to look so smarmy and sleazy and scary. Um But I find that really interesting that like they reconnect, they find their way. And why? Because they knew the maze. They had gone in. And I feel like, you know, you look at, again, to go back to Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung and all of these sort of symbolic psychological um, archetypes that we have come to understand and our, our desire for a hero and all of these things that we do as people, our need for storytelling and all of that. If you look at the maze as and what it represents and the forest and what it represents, it represents the forest specifically, represents the subconscious. And I think it's interesting that you have Wendy and Danny playing in the maze. They're not afraid of the feminine. They're not sure. afraid to go in and lose their way and figure out the right way out. So that ends up being what saves Danny's life. And Jack, who's so cold and so unfeeling and so in- incapable of connection, doesn't ever go in there. Mm-hmm. He never goes into the maze and only goes in to catch and kill his son and then dies there. And I find that to be a really interesting sort of circle of things that happen. So I agree with you. Like, it's it's a pretty unsettling movie, and there's definitely a very negative tone towards women, the one woman who's really in the film who's alive and not, like, some creepy ghost. Um, but I do find that to be an interesting, open-ended question. Like, sure. Like, you know, he couldn't make it out of the maze, but they could, so right. something and, to think about.
0: But that's, a, that's another reason why I actually feel like Kubrick doesn't like these two characters, mm-hmm. because we never see any resolution for them yeah. whatsoever. And now I know that for, for our Uber nerds who are listening, uh, there was an original, there was a scene, um, an epilogue essentially, yeah. where, you know, they, they did make it out. You know yeah. they made it out. Um, but the piece that we are left with now, we don't know they made it out. Yeah, we don't know that they found each other. We have to make the assumption. We have to make the assumption. But we, we And we can make the assumption. Um, and, and if you know the novel, you know yeah. that they obviously make it out. Um, but I do think that I noticed that this time around, where after I had finished the whole thing and realized that there's just this huge jump from yeah. from him, you know, losing his mind to now he's dead to now you've always been here, Mr. Torrance. And I was like, it, personified in that image, I was like, holy shit! He gives us no resolution for Danny or Wendy. No. He doesn't give. He doesn't care. He's like, no, this is Maybe Jack's movie. Yeah. This is you know, this is, and he's our he's the person we need to follow up with. Which again. A really like distinct decision. but um, but yeah, it's definitely something where I was like, uh-huh, okay, but isn't it
1: great that we can have to like, to me, it's Kubrick kind of commenting on evil. Mm-hmm. And how powerful it is and how sometimes, you know, that picture at the end of Danny, of uh, Jack in the Overlook Hotel. And it's like June 20th, 1920. Or it's or July 4th. Oh, it's July 4th. Which right. is so great. Again, going back to Native American, American. significance. Yes. and And here he is like embedded into this lore and this like demonic mythology of this place. So he, to, to kind of buttress your point, mm-hmm. actually, he gets to go on. Yeah. And he lives in immortality.
0: And we know because he said it throughout the whole movie, oh, mm-hmm. I love it here. Mm-hmm. I felt great here my whole, the second I walked in, I love it. Danny's like, dad, I don't know about this. He's like, what? This place rules. Yeah. I love this place. Because I'm a devil and, and I'm evil. Right? And yeah. so we know that Jack is like, yep, I'm staying here. Thank yeah. you very much. And so, yeah, I mean, it's. You know,
1: it's interesting, too. And maybe it's because I saw it when I was so young. I always identified with Danny. He was always the character that I felt was the real protagonist of the film, even though it's technically about Jack Torrance and his descent or lack thereof sure. into hell, into mm-hmm. like demonic evil. Um, Danny was always the one that I felt connected to, like that he's the most real evolved, developed person mm-hmm. of the three of Absolutely. them. He is the one, and maybe it's because he has the shine and he can sort of see, like you know evil and then you know you mentioned room 237 the mm-hmm. documentary which i thought was so interesting and it actually got blasted by critics like a lot of people didn't like it much like the shining yeah and what i think is interesting about that film is that it doesn't claim any of these it's basically a documentary for those of you that don't know about uh, all the different sort of uh, conspiracy theories or fan mm-hmm. theories that have arisen out of the shining and and kubrick's involvement in the moon landing and there's all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories out there And he kind of very diligently, the director, Mm -hmm. Rodney Asher, yes, I've interviewed him. I interviewed him for this film. And he even said, like, I'm not interested in saying any of these are true or false. I just wanted to give them all the respect that I felt they deserve to be explored and talked about and analyzed. Yes. And so that's what that movie is about. And just the fact that you have a film that has had this much of an impact on culture where you have people theorizing that, you know, Kubrick was, you know, faked the moon landing or that, you know, there are all these theories about the shining and that it was, you know, that it was, um, there was like Snow White and there was like Disney imagery and that it was connected to Disney. I mean, it's a fascinating documentary to watch, but I do think it's interesting that like, here we are talking about this film and that we can all have these multiple, multiple sort of analyses and they all make sense. Like they're all valid. Everything you're saying is valid to me, even though... I'm enthralled by it. Sure. And I'm also enthralled by how uncomfortable it makes me. But I remember being a kid and watching Danny. um, Like, I remember the conversation with Wendy and the doctor Mm -hmm. at the beginning. And I remember just knowing that Danny was going to be my through line in the film. And maybe it's because I was a child Mm -hmm. when I saw it. But he kind of is, if you think about it. He's sort of the voice of reason. Even though he's the kid with the special ability... He's the one who can see the forest for the trees throughout. And he knows that his father's dangerous. He's scared of his father. Yeah. And so he represents that human connection. So maybe that's why I always was able to connect to the film in a way is because I was connected through Danny. And as you get older, it's harder because he is a kid. Yeah. And he is little. And he doesn't have the same sort of analytical capabilities as most adults would. But he does because he has this ability. And then the connection between him and Scatman, you know, Mm -hmm. I always forget the character's name, Halloran. Yeah. And then he's in Florida. I'm always like... In Miami, And man. he's lying on the bed, and I'm like, don't go. Don't You're go. You're gonna die. Don't Anyways, go. It's a fun movie.
0: It's, it is I, fun. Fun to unpack. I could talk about it for hours, yeah. because I have points that I know would go on between you and I for at great length, mm-hmm. but we have to wind down, and as we wind down, Mm -hmm. I always like to ask the guests that I have um, what they would add to their list that they pulled the movie from. I have a tie.
1: Great. I couldn't figure out which one to choose. That's totally fine. So I was looking at the list for the greatest 100 movie quotes of all time, and there were two that were glaringly missing, as I said earlier. The first one is from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Uh where he says, life moves pretty fast. You don't know, stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it, mm-hmm. which has been like my motto and mantra for life since I saw that movie when I was a kid. And I can't believe it's not on the list. Yeah. That's
0: a great point because it's quoted all the time, especially now that yes. it's become an internet, like that meme, yeah. a meme culture of like life moves pretty fast. You yeah. Know? It's and like,
1: especially now with cell phones and we're all looking at our yeah. screens all the time. I can't believe that's not on the list. So that's number one. Number two is even in a way more impactful in pop culture is 1993, dazed and confused. All right. All right. All right. That's not in there. Yeah. Which surprises me because Matthew McConaughey has in part built his brand identity as a star yeah. on that quote. Like he became a part of him kind of took Waterson with him. Yeah. And his like, you know, loving the younger girls and being kind of creepy. Uh-huh. And he turned it into a charitable organization. Like the all right, all right, whatever it's called. It's um, oh no, it's L A V I N. you know, like, uh-huh. so he's kind of co-opted that easygoing stoner thing into his brand and everybody knows it. Everybody talks about it and it's not
0: on that list. Yeah. You know, these are both coming of age for lack of a better term teen movies. Mm -hmm. I know that Ferris Bueller has a lot to say about life. Don't, don't get angry at me, but I'm (laughs) saying in the eyes of AFI, it probably is. They're like, whatever. They see Ferris Bueller and, um, dazed and confused. I'm sure Mm -hmm. as, um, as teen films, but you're right. And, and from two, um, Um, And in John Hughes, especially, I mean, one of the most quotable um, screenwriters or pop culture screenwriters, I think of the last 50 years for sure. I mean, God, you could quote, you could quote 16 Candles. You mm-hmm. could quote Ferris Bueller. You could quote Club. The, exactly. Yeah. The list goes on and on and on. Um, but I, I think it's just because, you know, as I, um, I love these lists because I think they give great parameters mm-hmm. for um, just for for discussion because to say, pick a movie, any movie, you're like, oh my God. you know, I know it's, it's like, a very big
1: task. It took me like days and days and days. It I is. I was like, I don't know what I want to talk about. I want to talk about everything.
0: And so imagine that, you know, like you, you could pick literally any movie and not, it wasn't even just from this list. But I think and I hope that, you know, it's 20, we're recording this in 2017 and alleged, well, it hasn't been confirmed nobody knows but usually afi likes to revamp their lists every 10 years yep. so we are kind of due for another one and yep. i think that specifically with all right all right all right the fact that mcconaughey stood up in front of the academy yes. and accepted his best actor oscar exactly. and said all right all right all right is is amazing and and so great and um, there was this whole maconissance which course. i hate to,
1: i hate that term but but i do think that you know that's one, the Ferris Bueller one's sort of more closer to my heart. Oh, sure. But I do think that the days and Confused quote is, has sort of transcended trend to become a mainstay. Like we, this movie came out in 1993 and we're looking on like, you know, 25 years later. It's, people are still saying these things. Oh, like people yeah. People are still saying alright, alright, alright and everybody knows what it is. Everybody knows exactly the moment in the film
0: and I feel like that is a quote that deserves to be on a list just I, for that reason. I think you're right and I think t- because also so much of you know one of the thing that's, things that's fun about thinking like what makes something work what makes something click is that it is the combination of the actor and the delivery mm-hmm. and the writing. You know I mean if you have have the wrong person saying all right all right all right it means nothing but you have the perfect person saying mm-hmm. it and therefore an iconic film moment is born I think it might be his best role still like I still love Wooderson I mean I love Wooderson too I don't know if it's his best role well, I, I, know, I love I love, I love McConaughey yeah. um, but uh, and as far as Ferris Bueller goes I think you know I think and I mean this sincerely. Like I want, I hope going forward, as there are more and more of these lists or revisions or whatever, that the coming of age film is more represented. Because for I my agree. money, both um, you know, I think you could argue, you could make an academic argument, even though I guess I, it's not necessarily considered a coming of age movie. But Wayne's World, which came out around the same time, has just uh, just as quotable lines as does Clueless. I think Clueless, Clueless is a great. Cool. And it is a great movie. I yeah. think people forget because it's girls. If I'm being completely honest, no, you're honest right. With you. And
1: it's also like a snapshot of, and in a in a sense, a parody of a very wealthy, very sheltered, sure. very sort of um, insulated group of girls that are, you know protected from real life but even that's you know touched upon which is like i'm in the valley i got robbed (laughs) i know it's so good they're on the freeway it kind of laughs at them while also kind of uh celebrating them at the same time you know and it's a great it's a great film i love clueless and
0: she plays uh, alicia silverstone plays again with the delivery i i think it's like honestly i can't see anyone else playing that role as sincerely i know and as like thoughtfully because while and because that character that character is a hard
1: one to pull off and she makes her endearing and I think you know it's based on Emma the Jane Austen novel and I think what's interesting when you read the book and then when you watch the adaptations of the book like Emma the one with Gwyneth Paltrow there's been a few Mm -hmm. um is that that's the essence of that character she really genuinely believes that she's doing good and she's really in her own very self-absorbed kind of vain way wants to do good by people. She wants to do right by people Absolutely. and the people she cares about. So it's, it's being able to capture that cluelessness and that sort of self-involved navel gazing sort of, uh, you know, handicap with, also being really caring. And she she does walk that line really brilliantly. It's a great it's a great performance.
0: Man, from *Shining* The Shining to Clueless. I never thought Only we'd get Clark. there. <laughs> Only with Clark Wolf. But I I'm love so it. I'm so glad that we did. Yay. Mm-hmm. Alright, yeah. well um, thank you for your time, Miri. Thank what a you treat. for having this me. This is super fun. I think we're gonna need a part two. I think so too. We're gonna need to find a reason. I- I'll find a little sneaky sneak reason for us to do more on either The Shining well, or another and film. And we can do the other two movies that I didn't get to talk about absolutely because those are my two favorite of a certain genre done of all time that I'm not going to tell you because you'll have to listen mysteries um well good if you agree to come back then you shall return of course I will wonderful thank you Mary thank you Clark All right, all right, all right. So that's my episode with Miri. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that dialogue about the shining. Um, some really fun, cool, thought provoking points, uh, that she made that I love. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it. Okay. That's going to do it for me today. Don't forget that this Thursday there is a brand new Patreon, uh, mini that is for $5 a month contributors, contributors or higher. Um, it is a special surprise. Yes. You heard me right. A special surprise. This is a tease. Um, but if you like today's conversation, and if maybe you are a fan of the horror genre, there's a really fun thing uh, that I have coming out on Thursday that is going to lead into something hopefully that you'll hear next week. Um, all the secrets. Alrighty, friends, take care. Thanks so much, and I will see you soon. <laughs>